0: We often see that young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are less likely to overcome the barriers into professional competitive careers. For example, that 71% of barristers are privately educated.
1: Sutton uh, Trust materials has been the fact that 93% of Sutton Trust students from the lowest socioeconomic groups move to the highest at the university. And I think that is credit to the fact that they are a, effectively a social mobility accelerator. It can't be right to be using the talents and energies of a very small section of society to solve all our problems.
0: Hello, and welcome to the Inclusive Exclusive, a podcast brought to you by Henley Business School. Here, we look at equity in UK organisations, bringing you powerful insights from academic research combined with real-world stories and thought-provoking interviews. We'd love you to subscribe and join us as we work together for equity. I'm Dr. Melissa Carr, and today we're going to hear a story of social mobility in UK business. Joining me is Roger Clark, Deputy Director of the Policy Response Unit at the Department for Education, Food and Rural Affairs. Welcome, Roger. Hi,
1: Melissa. It's great to be here. Thank you very much.
0: Great to have you here. Before Roger introduces himself, what do we mean by social mobility? Social mobility looks at how educational opportunities and life chances are strongly linked to parents' socio-economic background. In the UK, social mobility is low. If you're born into a well-off family, you are two and a half more times more likely to end up wealthy yourself. This is something that the Sutton Trust seeks to champion through the summer school programmes, research, policy influence. And to that end, Roger, would you like to tell us a little bit about yourself, what you do and how do you understand social mobility?
1: Thanks, Melissa. So... Yes, I am a deputy director in the UK civil service. Uh, I'm also a, a husband and father, and uh, I'm just enjoying my early 30s after quite a busy uh, 20s doing a number of different jobs, which I'll probably touch on in a bit. I, in terms of what I do, I do, I find it difficult to explain to anyone what I do. I tell my mum I move paper around, which, uh, which usually kind of uh, is what she thinks all civil servants do. But I basically advise ministers on the... Options that they have to deal with problems and the pros and cons of those options to enable them to make decisions that affect our daily lives. And I've done that in a number of different government departments, mostly during crises. So that's been quite interesting and fun over the last few years.
0: And what's the remit of DEFRA, very briefly?
1: So DEFRA is the Department for Environment, Food and Rural Affairs, responsible for our food, water, natural environment, fishing, and a number of other uh, things. It's usually kind of in the background and doesn't come to the fore apart from when people are worried, for example, about uh, panic buying during COVID um, or our supply chains over the last few years. And yeah, it's a really interesting department to be in. You also asked me about social mobility, though, and I suppose what I understood to mean about it. And I suppose most of this interview will be be about that. I think, like, in a nutshell, my approach to social mobility has always been that it can't be right to be using the talents and energies of a very small section of society to solve all our problems. Part of my job now involves looking to get the, the maximum possible number of options on the table to deal with our problems. And I am a big advocate of the fact that the more people we engage in the decision-motion process, um, obviously depending on the time we have available, the better the outcome will be for everyone. So I think social mobility is not chilly about, for me, I mean, this sounds almost like physically incorrect, but it's not actually about necessarily benefiting those from low socioeconomic backgrounds like exclusively. It's actually about improving society overall by getting as many people into the tent as possible and making them people feel like and indeed be able to move up the social mobility ladder based on their own merits and talents.
0: Yeah. So it really is about equity and not just about having diversity in organisations, but about having inclusion, it sounds like.
1: Allowing people to be authentic as well. And that's a big a big one of my tenets that I stick to, which I'm sure I'll talk about more about later.
0: One of the things we talked about previously is about the Sutton Trust and your involvement with the Sutton Trust. Could you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. So uh, the Sutton Trust, in a sentence, it changed my outlook of what I was going to do in my life and sort of put me on effectively a different uh, track uh, to the one I was going on. So uh, Sutton Trust is a, a force for social mobility in the UK. It's does a number of things, but the thing that benefited me most is put me on a program that gave me a week at Cambridge University, plucked me out of rural Wales and put me into uh, into the sort of the spires of uh, the Cambridge colleges, and in doing so, opened my eyes to the possibilities of what I could do in my life uh, in a way that I wasn't going to experience otherwise. St um, Trust has helped forty one thousand people sort of do similar courses since nineteen ninety seven, and ninety three percent. I'm not a big fan of stats for the sake of stats, but the thing that stood out for me as when I've kind of come across uh, Sutton Trust materials has been the fact that 93% of Sutton Trust students from the lowest socioeconomic groups move to the highest at the university. And I think that is credit to the fact that they are uh, effectively a social mobility accelerator for huge numbers of people uh, and indeed increasing numbers of students now.
0: And you you talked about how it's influenced your life in terms of the week programme that you went on sort of in terms of access to university. Can you, going back to your school, can you tell me a little about your experiences of childhood and your experiences of school? you said you grew up in rural Wales. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Sure. Well, the first thing to say is I had quite a happy childhood. I think it's unfair when people assume that these Accessibility charities only help those from you know your app the stories that get told are about people who have to be honest much worse lives than i did i had a, I had a great childhood uh, i was uh, born in sheffield up in yorkshire uh, moved to abenistaff when i was seven years old and then i attended a, a good like sort of good for the area definitely state school pengglies comprehensive school i suppose i never thought it was weird that neither of my un- parents went to university out of school. And my mum's self-confessed reason for going to university was because it provided great childcare. uh, Because at that point, she was a single mum with just myself. And they had a nursery uh, attached to the university. So she's always told me she went to university purely because they provided nursery cover, which I never again thought was weird. I also didn't think it was weird that I knew exactly how many hours my mum had worked in a given month because she had to keep up a minimum number of contracted hours to keep her job. She was always terrified about losing that. And so kind of, absolutely happy childhood but definitely as we'll get on to my experience I think in terms of my awareness of the importance of financial security my open-mindedness to various career options uh, was like I had quite a different perspective on it from a lot of my peers at university but at school yeah I did quite well the move to rural Wales was actually really good for me um, academically it's a very small pond as it were and I uh, and I kind of found the confidence I suppose to deploy what must have been some reasonable talents as I got like decent like very very decent grades and was able to like sort of latch on to the the really supportive teachers you know there was a small number of individuals who are teachers who really made me aware of like the world out there and indeed one of them put me sort of in touch with the Sutton Trust at a reasonably early stage and sort of said this is something you should probably look at because it will make it more likely you'll be able to go to a, a university that's that's going to kind of massively broaden your horizons.
0: So it sounds like that one teacher, the kind of, there were a handful of teachers at your school that had a really big influence on sort of, I guess, ex, you know, broadening your experience about the types of universities out there. I mean, generally when you were at school, did people talk about things like, you know, elite universities like Oxford and Cambridge and Russell Group? Were these types of conversations that were had or was there an expectation that you would apply to university for most people?
1: So those conversations were kind of had like about a few months before the UCAS deadline before that it just wasn't really a thing I never really knew what Russell Group was until actually I was at university <laughs> so so obviously we didn't have didn't have that discussed at Oxbridge I think because you know my school had sent people to I mean on average it was less than one person per year went to Oxbridge it had sent people there before so it was a thing that happened to like oh the person over in that village they got someone who went to Oxbridge but it was almost I don't know seen as a it's not a great analogy, but like almost like a Hunger Games style, this is the individual, Abnerister for sending over to like the big world out in, in like Oxford or Cambridge. It was a sort of, you became locally famous. And indeed, I think I featured in the local paper upon going, which I suppose shows that it was quite, again, I didn't really think of much of that. I thought it was just a bit embarrassing. Looking back on it, that probably doesn't happen in quite a lot of Southern England when people go to Oxbridge.
0: I think that's right. And actually, I mean, if we lead on to talk about some of the that related to university particularly. I'm going to share some statistics. I know you said you don't like them, but as an academic, um, I can't help it. So you have to <laughs> bear with me. There's um, so, um, so some statistics from the Sutton Trust, for example, they said that of elite decision makers in the UK, 39% had been privately educated, 24% had graduated from Oxford or Cambridge. And we've been talking about this in terms of Oxbridge. And that's a slow and notoriously slow pace of change. And if we look at, say, for example, access to some of the elite or top universities, Sutton Trust highlighted that eight of the UK's top schools had had many acceptances into Oxbridge as... 2,894 of all of the other schools and colleges put together. So you can see in a way, you know, as you said, you know, you said about you kind of featured in in the paper, you know, this almost sort of funnel effect from some of these top schools into these top universities. You talked about your experiences of, you know, attending Cambridge universities. What was your experience like when you did get to Cambridge?
1: So, so really good, first of all. Um, So I went to a really nice college. I went to Sydney Sussex, Sydney Sussex College, which, It's a very like welcoming, quite small, but like also very centrally located um, college and had a a really lovely time there. I don't think the experience was exactly the same for other colleges, particularly those that have a reputation for being more biased towards private schools. But this was back in, you know, to be clear, this is back in 2008. I think a lot has changed since then. At least that's what I hear. And so I don't think that's kind of quite as true anymore I think actually the that niceness and indeed the um the relatively strong states or contingent is much more prevalent now I had a really nice time particularly after the first kind of term or indeed year I suppose i it was a massively you know, I mentioned that I got good grades at Universe uh, at school, so that was sort of, I, I kind of knew I had the intellectual ability, at least as measured by by our exam system. In my first essay, I was lucky it got a low third, and I couldn't write, but they'd helped me do that. And so they gave me an essayist, and I sat down and had a very uncomfortable few hours with that essayist every week for a year. And then at the end of the first year, I got a first. So like, because I learned to communicate in a way that was much more essay based, much more, I mean, let's be relatively blunt here, like much more highbrow, formal, a kind of, there's a way of talking and a way of writing and a way of communicating that is just the way you communicate in order to get good grades at good universities. And that's not something I'd picked up in my school, which had equipped me in many ways, but hadn't equipped me with that. So that was quite a difficult journey. But like socially and kind of emotionally, there was there's also there was a huge amount of support there. And in some ways I think it's harder for those who maybe go to a Russell Group University that isn't like Oxbridge, but are also expect given such high expectations and don't have that wraparound support. And I think that can be really, really difficult because I found I found it a hugely supportive environment and was really glad I ended up there. Rather than emerging into the world of work and having to learn those sort of skills and writing and dealing with challenge and being adaptable in my twenties, which would have been more difficult. And I think, like moving away from the academic stuff, like the adaptability side of things, uh, one of the one of the great things about university is you come across people from all all walks of life, and found it an incredibly useful place to be to learn how to get on with a lot of different people. Having been with the same group of people broadly from the age of seven to 18, I suddenly then had to sort of like thrive in a number of different environments at a time. And that was a very useful experience when it comes to like navigating the world of work and indeed the civil service now. So that was, that was good.
0: Did you find some of those kind of experiences where there was this unwritten sort of unspoken language? and? learning some of these things
1: the hidden pathways to success so i'm sure that particularly oxford would, 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 would turn around and say oh we've got exactly the same i think so yeah this sort of hidden language first of all i mean like in cambridge it's called supervisions not tutorials so it's an entirely different thing to it <laughs> based of course the well at least it used to be yeah that hidden language and this is where i'll probably get a little bit deep in a tiny bit dark as well i suppose There was a new way of speaking and a new way of interacting that was like completely alien. I think it was alien to a lot of people there, to be honest. I think it was less alien to those who'd been to extremely privileged private schools. I think they they kind of settled into it much more confidently. But I think we all got there eventually. However, I think everyone had a kind of a crutch to do that. Or like that's where people kind of looking around and indeed reflecting on it over the last decade that like everyone used a crutch in order to in order to support themselves as they reached out and learned this new language so it didn't matter if you didn't quite know what was going on there because you had either you threw yourself into your studies like and you worked like no one's business you threw yourself into drama and dramatics and you had a network there you threw yourself into sports uh, you drank a lot that happened quite a lot I did quite a lot of that at university and um and in retrospect some of that was probably a bit of a coping mechanism because it's quite you immediately fit into a, a sort of a social network there where you can ask things like oh like how are you actually preparing for exams because I've never really had to prepare for exams like this before it's much easier to do that during a uh, during a social drinking session than in uh, kind of in a really in the library because of the stereotypes that come with that and the uh, the kind of the, the, the continued anti-nerd narrative that, uh, that sort of sat around at, at least at that, that period of time. So I think it was all manageable, but mainly because of those crutches that were readily available that allowed you, even if you were from a background that hadn't necessarily pre-equipped you, to quickly find a group of people with whom you could confer and, uh, and collectively kind of undertake what was quite a, quite a learning experience
0: and then the other thing i think struck me from what you're saying is about your experience of meeting lots of different people from lots of different backgrounds and i think one of the things that's often talked about is social capital so this idea about how you build networks and and through that you kind of you you know you can develop sort of means to influence you talked about the hidden pathways did you find that experience being at cambridge that it gave you access to to develop a sort of a network and some sorts of forms of social capital?
1: So it definitely did. It wasn't like I met someone whose dad then gave me a job sort of next year or like over summer, or it wasn't quite that explicit, but it was that I had a group of friends, all of whom were going off to do very different jobs. And that made me at least realise there are at least 20 jobs out there I could probably do coming out of university, which I don't think is something you get from all universities and definitely isn't something you get if you're leaving school in an area that doesn't have that many economic opportunities um you're kind of your your bandwidth is much more limited and i think that network gives three things really which like have all always sort of stood out one is a huge sense of confidence that you know if i go and i don't know play football or drink or act or whatever i do with this person and they go off and work for Goldman Sachs or Freshfields or, I don't know, a non round esque job, then I can probably do that as well, to be honest, because they're not that clever. I know. <laughs> so that confidence is really good. Second is a like really intense competition. So turning that into, on its dark side, really, or looking at the dark side of that relationship, it's the fact that whilst you're friends with everyone there, you're also competing against them, and you're competing explicitly in exams. But as people come out of university, you're very much looking at what job has that person got And like, I can get a better job than that, or I can progress quicker than that, or I can get more money than that. So a real sense of competition. And then thirdly, it's sort of a credibility side. So it never felt credible, that, or indeed realistic, that I could go off and earn a huge amount of money out of university straight away. But then lots of people I knew did. So I think in terms of confidence, competition, and credibility, having that network just like effectively supercharges you as you shoot into your shoot into your early career
0: yeah so that's really interesting so I think for you it was almost that you were just seeing people taking these opportunities and it it, as you said it broadened your bandwidth
1: I mean I literally applied for my first internship because my girlfriend at the time now wife had applied for it and I saw it on her desk in a room and I was like oh that looks interesting I'll apply for that it was a a marketing internship with Centrica and I wasn't going to apply for it anyway but I was like, oh, well, I may as well do something in my summer, apply for that, got it. And then that kind of, you know, those things happen quite often and just, yeah, meant that I had a much more busy, productive summer than I would have otherwise. And um,
0: leading in to talk a little bit about experiences around work and this, this idea about access and you picked up on this idea about competition, Access into certain occupations is highly competitive, and we often see that young people from disadvantaged backgrounds are less likely to overcome the barriers into professional competitive careers, such as in medicine, law, finance, and politics. The Social Mobility Commission found, for example, that 71% of barristers are privately educated. What do you think organisations can do to break down some of these barriers?
1: So, first of all, while I said I'm not a fan of statistics, I'm a big fan of collecting data, and I think monitoring what is actually going on in your workforce and how it relates to the wider population is really important. And part of the difficulty, I think, with social mobility as a framing of inequality that's different from one based on ethnicity specifically or gender, like social mobility is, is, is a bit blurry around the edges. And I think the difficulty has been around like how do you actually like measure it in your workforce? Is it just people who sort of say, I'm a working class, or is it, or is it much more granular than that? Uh, and there are some help now, there's some, a lot of like helpful stuff out there. So the Southern Trust, for example, like, has an employer's guide with a number of questions that employers can ask themselves that have been sort of statistically assured, which said, you know, with these two or three questions, you can turn around and basically segment your workforce as to how it compares to the wider population. I think the second thing is removing specific qualification barriers. So whilst i absolutely think my gcse's a levels then degree were worth you know absolute gold at the time i developed enough particularly as i said in my first year at university to know that pinning people onto what they achieve at an age which may be you know a decade before uh, when you're actually recruiting them uh, is kind of unfair and I you know I was filling in a uh, job specification form literally yesterday in my current role and made sure to remove any suggestion that there was a specific qualification needed for the job it was much more about their experience and the skills that they brought so I feel like I'm living that one that one myself third thing I'd say would be paying for internships paying people who are on internships I never did a sort of creative fun event management-y internship in my university years because I had to get paid for it because they were based in London. So (laughs) that isn't the case if if you're lucky enough to have a family with a flat in London or a house in London or a house near London. And it was one of my kind of, I don't have many regrets in life, but I I do wish I'd looked at that a bit closer in my immediate post-university years. I think paying people to do internships both encourages people from a more diverse range of backgrounds and it encourages you to make better use of the interns that you get. You actually wanna give them work rather than just getting them to make coffee and things. So I think that's that's really important. And the fourth thing I'd say that organizations can do to break down the barriers, uh, mentoring schemes. So I not only mentor others, but we have a reverse mentoring scheme in DEFRA where someone who's come in as an apprentice from a, a care background, is able to talk to me about their experience, at, you know, at school, not at university, because they didn't go to university, but in entering the organisation, and that just opens, it keeps, I suppose, senior leaders' eyes open, particularly in the so-called ivory towers of Westminster, um, of Whitehall. I think, yeah, having that reverse mentoring relationships really important because you ultimately draw your, you create your perceptions of the world based on lots of the time based on those who you talk to. So making sure you talk to people from diverse backgrounds is is, is not just like a nice to have. I think it's an absolute critical thing to do. And finally, I think in terms of what organizations can do to break down the barriers, having multiple entry routes, it's a big thing to have A an internship program, a graduate program, and those graduates go on and become the whatever, junior X or junior Y. And this is our pipeline. You need to apply by the, I don't know, 12th of February, or you have no chance of joining. You will have to wait a year. That lack of flexibility is not going to be helpful to someone who has, for example, like someone in my team, massive caring responsibilities for their younger siblings. It's not going to be helpful to someone who is parties too much when they're like in their late teens, then turns around and realises actually they need to like do something other than partying with their life, and they've missed all the chances, and they're like, well, what am I going to do now? So having... Multiple or flexible entry routes as an employer, I think, is really, really important and something which I'm pushing quite a lot in my current role and pushing my team to make sure we we do sign up for the many different entry routes that the civil service has. It's not just about the fast stream, despite what uh, people may believe. It is uh, There's a huge number of different ways to get into the civil service, and so um, it's something I, I'm really pushing strongly in my current role.
0: That's really interesting, Roger. And I think much of what I reflect on what you're talking about is almost there's an assumption about how people's lives are, that you do your GCSEs, you do your A-levels, you progress nicely and in a linear process, you go to university, you apply for a job, as you said. There is this assumption, but... You know, for many people who, as you said, lives don't go like that. You know, if you don't have those points of access, if you don't have opportunities, if you come to education later in life. As you said, what we're doing is potentially holding back a whole range of people who just don't fit the current model. And um, so I think much of what you're saying is actually really just about, you know, giving people opportunities who haven't had those kind of very neat linear lives, which you have to have a sort of certain amount of advantage that goes with having that sort of type of progression. So that's really interesting. I think you've raised some great points
1: there. It's a better plan than I am, basically, or I was. And you have to know things like, who knows that, I mean, again, this may have changed, but I remember turning around. The reason I applied for um, the same internship as my then girlfriend was because I'd, I had missed the boat on every other one because everyone had applied for them over Christmas. So I was like, well, I, I assume Christmas is to spend with family and, I don't know, at the time, play computer games and go for a run or whatever but no apparently everyone was applying for internships so I came back and I realized oh no I missed that one never mind.
0: And as you said you know just um, paying for internships you know the, the volume of people who have done unpaid internships which again you know it's only a certain group of people who comes you know financially support yourself themselves as you said and having access to kind of accommodation in London often so yeah these are kind of barriers as well yeah. You're now at the um, Deputy Director at um, DEFRA which is as we talked about as part of the civil service One of the things the Social Mobility Commission recently reported on is, and we've kind of hinted at this, is this Navigating the Labyrinth. So what this claims, the report says, is that within the civil service, there are these hidden routes to the top, which those from privileged backgrounds find it easier to navigate. I mean, what do you think the civil service are doing really well to promote social mobility?
1: Yes, I have read the uh, Navigating the Labyrinth report. So first of all, I I do recognise a lot of its conclusions. I don't think it's worth sugarcoating that. I think... It's a very live conversation on which a lot of sort of quite honest and open discussions are being had, which sounds a bit like words for the sake of words, but I think is the first step in in an organisation truly changing, particularly in one that's so large and sort of, I don't want to say slow because it's the wrong, but but, you know, a large organisation does take quite a few conversations to, to culturally change, as we're seeing in a much more damaging fashion when it comes to things like the police at the moment when it comes to racism you know that's not a great comparison to make but it, the point is you have a certain inertia in large organizations which makes change ultimately somewhat slow unless there's something some massive external force like i don't know covid for example which actually is somewhat useful which i'll, I'll get on to in a moment i think so my personal experience has been that my cambridge time cambridge university learning to be adaptable has been really really useful So I have a role that's very much focused on dealing with urgent policy crises. So Ukraine, a recent one, for example, a lot of my work related to that before that COVID and uh, before that, a number of other things, I think, in those kinds of roles where you move between speaking to a minister and speaking to a quite an operational person on the ground, you have to adopt a number of different, you have to put different different hats on. And going through Cambridge and having to do exactly the same thing has made it much easier for me to survive and thrive in my role. Looking kind of wider than my own experience, I think I think this also is just doing quite a lot of good things. So workforce-wide reporting. Is well underway. Again, it's not as fast a rollout as 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 I'd necessarily like, but it is happening. So, you know, that's recording exactly the sort of things I mentioned earlier that Saturn Trust recommends. So whether parents attended university, whether people have had free school meals, that kind of thing, just to be able to work out where the least social mobility is in the organization. Apprenticeships are a massive and increasing part of a part of the way in which the civil service is pushing social mobility. So there's a five percent target, which this has signed up to. So five percent of staff being in apprenticeships, which is really exciting, and that's something that I'm particularly taking a lead on in my team, where we've, you know, we've more than tripled the number of apprentices we've got just over the last few months because we're pushing it much more strongly, um, and we're using it, as I said, as a way of opening up a different career entry pathway from the famous uh, fast stream. There's a lot of other things in terms of opening up schemes for those who are going to become, or indeed already are, senior civil servants. So these are sort of talent programmes, and those are increasingly pitched in a way that makes them more attractive to and indeed incentivizes applications from those from lower social social, economic backgrounds. And you have for accelerator roles or so-called accelerator roles and private officers, that kind of thing, much more of a focus on getting those from so low, lower socioeconomic backgrounds. But I also think there's a whole, there's actually quite a big piece here, which is often not written about and relates a bit to COVID, as I mentioned. So COVID made remote working a lot easier across the civil service. It made things like the Places for Growth initiative. So working outside of London, like putting places out like the Treasury in Darlington. DEFRA has uh, has got a new office in newcastle Tyne, which apparently is lovely and much better than the London one. I think COVID has really shaken the tree a little bit on this in a really helpful way because it's made, first of all, people able to be more flexible in where they're based, which is really good. Secondly, because people had to work quite odd hours during COVID, particularly if you were on the crisis management, it's made the idea of flexible working much more palatable to sort of all ranks of the organisation and people have appreciated the benefits that it can bring. So some of my teams, for example, may work evenings because they actually found that easier and it like docks in nicely to their work and that can make it easier for certain people with caring responsibilities, for example. So maximising the ways in which people can engage with a a particularly high profile and kind of interesting job is something that COVID is definitely, or the response to COVID has definitely made a lot easier. And I think finally, it's also during COVID, a lot of hard truths had to be conveyed to senior officials and indeed to ministers about the lived experience of people outside of London in particular. And I think Being exposed to the operational details of what the NHS had to go through, of, you know, people all buying, stockpiling on toilet roll, that kind of thing, really helped to provide a, a, like, it shattered a little bit of the, that ivory tower Artifest that I've kind of mentioned before. So, isn't something that civil service necessarily proactively drove, but it's something which I, where I think a lot of work is now being done to embed the lessons that we learn and make the civil service a better place. And I, ultimately, I think it is. I mean, I'm not going to, whilst I have managed to pick up a few grey hairs in recent years, I'm not, you know, your old kind of civil servant uh, looking towards retirement just yet. But I've been in it for a good decade now, and it is much more of an authentic socially mobile place now, at least in my personal experience, uh, than it was back in 2013 when I first joined.
0: So it sounds like that, um, I mean, one of the things that the leadership the Navigating the Labyrinth talked about is this with relation to social mobility is that you tend to find that people from a more privileged socioeconomic background are sort of Whitehall policy, London centric in the civil service. And it sounds from what you're saying that COVID and flexible working has almost accelerated that change by moving um, some of the departments out of London, giving people opportunities to work from home, work flexibly. Again, I think what it sounds like just allowing access to people who have different needs. We we talk about this idea about equity, that, you know, understanding people's circumstances, it sounds like. I've got one final question for you, if that's okay. And it's been great hearing your experiences today. What advice would you give your 18 year old
1: self? I thought a lot about this. So one bit of advice, which isn't that it isn't very handy business school, I'm sure, but it's don't waste that much time being hungover. It's just a lot of time. A lot of time can be wasted doing that. And I don't know whether you choose to drink less or not at all, or indeed find things to do if you're time. That would be one thing I'd say to my 18 year old self, in all honesty, more kind of formally and sort of less, less jokingly, I think one thing I'd say is go out with a plan, a loose plan to test doing loads of things in your twenties. The downside of the Highly competitive, well supported, and confident world of Cambridge University that I entered is you gain a perception, and I think this is true across a lot of universities. And indeed, to be honest, I think for increasingly young people, think they have to because they so many of their peers are attempting to be or indeed are TikTok stars or whatever. Like there's a feeling you have to kind of have got it done by the time you're 20 or 21, and if you're not, you know, a millionaire by 25, then. Well, just another person aren't you I think that's just such rubbish and like testing out in your 20s particularly traveling so I've traveled I've lived in Latvia for a bit I've lived in New Zealand for a bit for various reasons like testing out loads of different jobs and roles in your 20s I think is a more acceptable because I was seen as a little fleet of foot probably because I moved jobs about every nine to twelve months when I was uh, in my in my 20s and um, I think that's more acceptable to do so now like just do it just get out there. Otherwise, you'll definitely regret not having changed jobs at least a few times. And it also has a really important way of opening your eyes to like other parts of society. So one of the things I did in my 20s was I was a special constable, a volunteer police officer in, in central London on, a, on Friday and Saturday nights for three years. Uh, that's interesting as a way of seeing both really positive versions of humanity and really negative versions of humanity. And I think... Being able to draw in those experiences and bring them forward into what for most people in the world is, is is the sort of golden bit of their career in their 30s, 40s, I think is really important and not something you can gain that easily when you get sort of to later in life, at least if you want to have a family and, and that kind of thing. The second of the two things that I'd say to myself is not to stray too far from your kind of roots a little bit. I wish I'd visited home a bit more, like despite giving this, you know, this whole thing's about being a narrative about me moving from a small town in for f- to, you know, the, the Disney heights of the Ivory Tower in, in Westminster. I think actually keeping more of a hold on where you've come from. I don't know as so far as who you are, because I think who you are changes over time, but but like who you were, and at least a big core of who you are, uh, is something that I'd probably advise mate yourself to do because there's there's a temptation when you when you do get an opportunity to sort of accelerate your social mobility, to leave behind a lot of that, and just to, 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 to sort of call it all rubbish, and to think now you're you're better than that, you know, small town and wherever it is, Northern England, you know, Wales, wherever. And I think that's quite arrogant. And I think my 18 year old self, no, definitely my 20 year old self, was was quite arrogant in that respect. And I think it led to all sorts of small issues, which never became, you know, we never had a big a big row, but I think. I'd have been a lot happier and a lot more sort of self-confident behind the mask if I'd have kind of kept a bit more of a stronger link with that part of my personality.
0: Yeah. Oh, that's good advice. That is good advice. I think it's yeah, it's advice you can say later on. But yeah, to be able to know that at 18, it's it uh, takes a sur- Yeah, there's a lot of strength in knowing that. Thank you, Roger, ever so much for your time. And it's been a fascinating discussion. I really do appreciate you taking the time to talk with us. So thank you for listening. This has been the Social Mobility in Business brought to you by Henley Business School with special guest Roger Clark and me, Melissa Carr.